Um, so complete this phrase, if you know it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, that's a lie, isn't it? Um, it should probably be more like sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will cut to the deepest parts of my heart, stomp on them over and over again and keep me in counseling for the rest of my entire life, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know who came up with that, and maybe it helped when we were in elementary school, but words are powerful, and not just in how they interact in our life, but words have changed the world. I mean, you look back at the history of the world and you go back to school and think about what well, was one of the great turning points in human history it was the invention of the Gutenberg Press, right? The Bible was able to be reproduced and words were able to be transmitted. It was no longer in the care of just a couple of people. Words were spread about. And then more recently, the information age has come upon us and they spread of the internet and how quickly words can be transmitted around the world. Right now, you can send a tweet that can be sent around the world in seconds. And words have, have toppled governments, worlds have changed words have changed things that are around us, both for the better and sometimes for the worse too, right? Because as much as we have the opportunity to build up, words can also be used to tear down and to destroy. Words have power. Uh, words also have a way of helping us receive and give love. For some of you, you're big love language people and you have read the book and you know that there's these different love languages. Rachel and I talk about this quite often because we have polar opposite love languages, which works out really, really well. Um, Rachel's are words and touch, and if I would just say the right words and like pat her arm every now and again, we'd be in great shape. Uh, mine are timing gifts, and neither of us speak each other's language. I do have a fifth little or a little known sixth one called food, which is a whole other sermon for another day. But words are a way that many of us receive and give love, and some of you are so good at that, of using that as a way to build people up in the poor and the others. Because words can speak life, right? They can speak life into us, and they can also send us the other way. I was thinking about this this week and some of the words that I've heard over time that have spoken life into me. I remember from a young age, I, I grew up in church, and though there was a season where I'd stopped going early on, I was really involved. And in that church, from time to time, they would ask me to read scripture. And I remember afterwards, some of the people at church just going, OJ, you're so good at reading scripture. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I'm good at something. And I guess it paid off, because look where I am now. Um, I remember there was a book that came out in, in the movies, and many of you all probably saw it, The Help. And there was a part in there where the, the, the woman who was in there would say these words to the child she was rearing up. And I remember early on, as Rachel and I were talking about raising kids, Rachel was like, I want to speak these words of truth into the kids every night. And there was, that, uh, there was a part in the movie where she would say every night to the girls, she said, you are so kind, you are important, you are smart. And, and Rachel said, I want to tell our kids that. I want to tell them they're smart, that they're important, that they're kind, to speak these words of life into them, to, to tell them who they are even before they fully know who they were so that they could live into those so that they would hear these words. I remember from an early age hearing, you're funny, OJ, and which is one of those great things because there's a truth to that, but there's also a part where you live into that. You've got to live into the thing that people tell you that you are. And so it was one of those ways that was also like, it was a way to, to fit in, but it also became a way to keep people at a distance, right? Because words, not only can they speak life, but they can also pierce you to the heart when they're so true. I remember uh, a friend of mine one time said, OJ, you're so funny that no one can ever get to know you. And I remember going, oh, but it was so true. I used humor as a way to keep people here. So nobody had to know this part, but you can get, kind of control it out here. And I think if we're honest, most of us have done that from time to time. We have a thing that allows people to know about this much of us, but not here, because we're going to keep that's safe. And I remember when he said that, I had to start taking a hard look inside. I remember another time a friend of mine was going through counseling school and he was doing a, a, like his career counseling. He said, hey, would you mind being a guinea pig? And if you ever have a counselor ask if you can be a guinea pig, you should think about that. Um, 
But I said yes. And I remember we were kind of going through it and talking about life and success and all these things. And at one point, he just looked at me and goes, you're really prideful, aren't you? Oh, but it was so true. At 24 years old, I sure was. And I still struggle with it. But it was one of those things that when words are true and they cut to the core and you have to deal with them. And then sometimes words um, can send you in a place that you can never fully recover from. My grandmother, she was my closest grandmother, and she passed away this past uh, January. And I spent a lot of time with her. We've been talking about it over these last few months. And um, I mean, a month or two months of the summer, we'd go up to their lake house and spend time together. And there are parts of her life I didn't know about kind of till the end. And at her, um, her um, funeral, the, the pastor who had been walking with her for the last few years of her life um, said something, and it made so much sense of her life. Early in her life, and she was probably six or seven years old, she had a teacher who said, you'll never amount to anything. And I don't know why anybody would ever say that to another human being, but she lived into that for the rest of her life. And I think if I had known that, it would have made a lot of things make sense because she never fully got to enjoy being a follower of Jesus. Though she was one, there was always a sense of, I'm never good enough. And on her literal deathbed, she asked this pastor, am I going to be good enough to get into heaven? She carried that with her her whole life. Words have tremendous power over us. I find it really interesting that Jesus um, is called the Word. In John 1, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, a passage that we spent some time with earlier this year, it retells the creation story. It puts in the place where Jesus was throughout time. And in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And this Word is, is the Logos. This Word is Jesus. It says, In the beginning was Jesus. And He defines Himself as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the word was God, this incredible statement. Jesus was there from the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God, and he was the word that spoke things into place. It says he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. If you go back to Genesis, God spoke into being everything in existence. Jesus was the word. Jesus speaks into being all that exists. So if Jesus is the word, and he starts speaking words to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, it would behoove us to listen quite closely to who he says they are. We're going to, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We, last week we covered the first part of the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements. And if you haven't had a chance to hear that, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that because all of this sermon builds on itself. It is all one sermon, though we're breaking it into pieces. But if we understand these Beatitudes, to understand the blessed are is having this right sense of who we are in God and who God has created us to be. And now he starts saying who we are in the world. So he moves in here, and what we're going to be looking at today, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, I'd invite you to read along in your bulletins or your Bibles if you have them. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heavens. I would wager uh, that words have changed your life in some way. Maybe it was a parent or a teacher or a friend who's spoken to you. Maybe it's something that has built you up 
and maybe it's words that have sent you into another direction. So what are those words that were spoken to you that built you up? What are the words that have torn you down? What are the words that you believe about you to be the most true that you've lived into you? Today, Jesus tells us words that are absolutely true, the most true thing about us. And the first thing he says is you are the salt of the earth. Salt. When you say something is salty, you know exactly what that flavor is, right? Salt is so unique. There is nothing else like salt. It is the most unique thing out there. Salt has a purpose. It brings flavor out, and it does something unique that nothing else does. It has this unique flavor to things. It brings out the life that are in things. And followers of Jesus, those who call themselves Christians, should be salt. They should be unique. They should add to the world. They should bring out the best of what's around them. And the main thing about salt, when I think Jesus uses this so, um, so purposefully because everybody knows what salt is. You can go to just about any culture and any place on earth, and salt is a main ingredient of what's there. If, if it's not, it's something they want. I mean, you think about in the history, salt was a huge commodity that built nations over time because salt was so needed for preserving food and for doing all of these things. Salt is different. And the same thing about the followers of Jesus as he's sitting there on the hillside. Remember, he's sitting there on a mountain. He's talking to his disciples, and there are people around him. And these are the disciples who have left their businesses. They've left everything they've known, and they're sitting here like, what are we doing? And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are different, and your power lies in your difference from the earth. There is something different about you. And what is it? How are you salt? He says, you're mine. You are my followers, and by simply by being mine, you are salt. I love that Jesus was Southern before there was the South. He says, y'all, basically, y'all are the salt of the earth. He's speaking to this group together, and he looks at them and says, you guys are the most significant people on earth. You are my followers. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just see a group of a dozen people and these other folks that are around them. He knows that 2,000 years later, we would be sitting in this room talking about these same words. He knew the long span of history that was going to happen. He knew that they really would be the salt of the earth. And so they're sitting there thinking, how is this possible, right? We've just, we're fishermen. We're these guys who've kind of just are following you. What in the world? And he sees hope and he sees their purpose in the world and this high praise that he gives. It's interesting, this is the 10th straight statement of fact so far in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, there's nine parts, blessed are, blessed are. And he says these things, and this is the 10th one, you folks are, y'all are. And it's very interesting that Jesus supports before he challenges, that he tells his disciples who they are before he tells them what to do, that he gives these blessings before he gives them the commands. Christians are, by simply the simple fact that they are with Jesus, the salt of the earth. And that is such good news there is nothing you can do to become salt. Jesus does that. You are the salt because of me. And Jesus imbues his followers with that. One of the things I find really interesting in this, one of the greatest differences between Christianity and all the other religions is when Jesus looks at them, he says, become what you are. Become what you are rather than become what you should be. In every other religion you'll find, you follow steps to become good enough to be the thing that you're supposed to be. But Jesus says, no, you are. Now become what you are. And if you can wrap your mind around that, it is an incredible thing that Jesus sees the most deep part of our hearts and our lives and all of our brokenness and all of our messed upness and everything else, but sees deep down 
that we truly are the salt of the earth. He sees who we are, and he says, now become who you are. So the great news as we start this is that we can't become salt, that only Jesus can do that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, even if this very day you take a step towards him and say, I, I want to follow you, Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. And immediately you become that. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you hear that and you hear, I'm the salt of the earth, and you kind of look at your life and you think about what's going on around you and the world around you, and you feel a bit of a disconnect saying, well, my life doesn't look very salty, and the world that I live in doesn't feel very much like this idea of salt, I would tell you that that is normal, because though in an instant we are, we're not fully yet. God's timing is not our timing, and though he says you are salt, there is still a part of we, it will take the rest of our lives to become fully who we're supposed to be. And it's part of following him closely, though he imbues us with that in an instant, it takes our whole life to continue to pursue him to stay salty. He gives us this quality and we live into it so we can feel a disconnect in that at times. But I think it's a healthy disconnect of reminding us that Jesus knows who we are and yet calls us to a greater part. And he follows this with his first warning in the Sermon on the Mount. Right after he says, you are the salt, he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So salt can either pursue its function, it can either enter food or it can deny its function, either by not entering food at all or by entering the food and not serving its purpose and not being salt within it. Thus, this warning immediately following the blessing of you are, the warning adds, but if that salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its flavor, it's meant to shake his followers up. It's meant to shake us up a bit as well. While Christians, while followers of Jesus are not challenged to become salty, again, that is the work that only Jesus can do in our lives. That's a gift of Jesus' grace and presence. We are challenged to stay salty. As we are challenged to be what we are, real Christians, real followers of him. And as I've mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount will take some time and it will shake us up. It will ask some big questions of us. Are you salty? Are you remaining in him? And though we can't become it, we can stay and experience the saltiness more fully through our pursuit of holiness by our nearness to Jesus. So how do we grow close to Jesus? How do we stay salt in the midst of this world? Jesus, again, was speaking to a group. He said, y'all, you guys together are from the very beginning, he meant for life to be lived together and for this to be lived out. These disciples were together and together they changed the world and together is a part of God's plan. So one of the big ways he has set aside is for the church to be the church together, to be Christians together, to love one another, to not give up giving, meeting with one another, to join together, to be refreshed and renewed and challenged and to spur one another on. This year, we've spent the year in our life of Jesus on purpose. We really believe that if you can fully know Jesus, not only what he says, but what he does and who he cares about and how he loves, that our lives will be so transformed that we'll be so enamored by him that we want to be more like him and we will be forever changed. And by proxy, so will the world around us. So being a part of the church is a huge part of how we remain salty in the midst of this world. The other one is reading the scriptures, reading the Bible, reading the words that Jesus left for us. It is a way to get to know him. We put together this gospel reading plan, but to read all of it, to know God's heart and character. This is a letter that has been left for us and truth that is here that will change your life. It is a living word. It is a word that is meant to penetrate and to live within us. And so spending time reading it and getting to know it and letting it live within us is a huge way that we remain salty. Living life together. 
As I said, Jesus said, y'all. He spoke to a group, and it's always been meant to live out in groups. So connect groups are a practical way that we do that at church, joining together with small groups of people to do life together, to join with one another, to help each other carry on, to learn, serve, worship, to love one another well. And if you want to get involved in that, we would highly encourage it. It is a great way to remain in him. One thing I would just tell you personally that I think is so important is Jesus has wired each of you so uniquely. Some of you are amazing artists. Some of you make incredible things with your hands. Some of you are so great with your words, your poets. Some of you love being outdoors. Some of you are great at caring for people. So you have been wired in such unique ways. And I think one of the dangers that sometimes we face in just a practical way is we want to be a Christian just like somebody else that we see who's a Christian. We want to be just like this other person. I know for me, I've had a couple of people that I've held on pedestals through my life, and they're just so wise and caring, and I love them. But one of the greatest gifts they've ever given me is say, no, be OJ. Salt is unique on purpose, and you have been created unique on purpose is to be yourself, to find out how you're wired. If you are wired to be around people, get around people. If you're wired to go into deep study, get into deep study. If you're wired to create beautiful art and that's how you experience Jesus, harness that. Don't fight against it. If they are things that are good. Now, if we're talking about some other things, we can talk about that. You know, if they're taking you in the wrong direction, but these parts of us that are created to make beautiful things and to, to light us up, Jesus wants you to be alive. And the ways we can do that to pursue him, find out how you're wired and follow it. And to be more you, I think, is one of the things that Jesus wants by being closer to him and being more you is one of the greatest gifts that you can give the world around you. Another way that we stay salty is, is by serving one another, both here at church as we raise up our kids, as we take care of each other, and the world around us as we serve him, we stay salty, we stay close to his heart in his purpose. Because here's the thing, we're supposed to be salty. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You're supposed to be unique. You're supposed to be interesting. We can be boring Christians and the world doesn't need any more of that. Uh, I know a lot of times we can get into a rut and feel like we're, if we just check off all the things, if we just suppress ourselves, I think there's a danger of that, of us just trying to hide. But God calls us, no, be the salt of the earth. Be in the midst of it. Add flavor to the world. John 10, 10, I came to give you life and life to the full. That may not mean riding a motorcycle over a canyon, but it might. I don't know what you guys are into. But be interesting. Follow your passions and be more fully alive because alive Christians are incredibly attractive to the world. Be alive in his word and be alive in him. I think one of the deepest desires of being a follower of Jesus is to be used by him to help people. Jesus now takes a moment to assure his disciples, these guys who have left everything they've known, right? They've, they've given up their lives and their professions to follow him and hear their hearing his teaching. And he takes time to assure them that they are being and they're going to be used by God to help people. And in fact, on the very widest scale, because he doesn't say you're going to be the salt of Galilee or you're going to be the salt of this little part of the world that you're sitting in on the side of the mountain. He says, no, you are the salt of the world. He has this huge view of what is going to be happening in their life. Salt does not exist for itself, nor should Christians exist for themselves. Salt's main mission is penetrating food, and Christians' main mission is penetrating the earth. Salt a centimeter away from food is useless, and Christians not living for people outside of themselves are worthless. And this danger is also a part of the warning of losing our saltiness. Though we are salt, there is a constant pressure to be insipid salt, to be boring salt, to be flavorless salt, to be so watered down that the salt doesn't even matter anymore. This blessing that Jesus gives was given to believers so that they will be blessings to the world. And we are put on notice that while it is from nothing that we have been made salt, it is not for nothing. Let me say that again. While 
We have been made salty from nothing. It is not for nothing. We are to live for other people. Christians and his disciples, followers of Jesus, we learn here for the first time explicitly, are in danger if they do not live as Christians. And this is what is meant by the warning's quite sad conclusion. It is absolutely useless except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. There is a real sense in this warning that to receive Jesus' word, his word of hope and life of being salt, only for one's own blessing is perverse. I remember early on, as I became a Christian and a follower of Jesus, the most important thing was to make sure people took that step in the following Jesus. And it is still the most important thing. We have to take a step in the following him. Without that, we do not become salt. There is a line we have to cross. There is a choice we have to make to follow Jesus. But if it ends there, it's not the purpose of it. And I remember for the longest time kind of sitting in this self-contained world of like, well, as long as I'm okay with Jesus, then that's all that matters. As long as my life's in order, I don't really need church. I don't really need these other things. And, and if everybody just sort of knows their own little individual place of being okay with Jesus, then that's all we need to do. But as time went on, as I uh, learned more about him and grew closer to him, this tug towards other people starts happening. And I realized that the point of the gospel was never just for me, though it is for me. The direction is always out towards others. The purpose of the transforming hope of the gospel is for the whole world. It is for our neighbors and our friends and our families, the burden for them. This hope that Jesus and the grace that he gives in our lives should so radically transform us that it actually draws us to those around us. Uh, this quote I found has shaken me up a bit, and I think it is true. It says, when a person has a true encounter with the Christ, they will become inevitably mission-minded. A true encounter with Christ will draw us to the world around us. It will make us look for the opportunities to love the world around us. So here's the question. Are you mission-minded? Who is God calling you to? These are questions we're going to be asking a lot this year. If you've had a true encounter with Jesus and he is working your life, who are the people he's calling you to? Is it your family? Is it your neighbors? Is it your school? Is it your place of business? Is it your friend? Who is God drawing you to that you have a burning desire to know? Who is God opening your heart to? Where are the places that you're being directed to? He continues on, verses 14 through 16. He then uses this imagery of light. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's to be something about the way Christians are, about the way they live together and talk about each other, about the way they relate to the not always friendly surrounding world that is meant to catch the world's attention, that is to cause people to ask, what kind of people are these? Who are these people? As the moon reflects the sun's radiance so that we can see at night, so are disciples and followers of Jesus supposed to reflect his glory to the world, to reflect the radiance of the true light, Jesus' light. He gives this opportunity to reflect him to the world. Do you ever worry um, that you won't be used by God, uh, that your life doesn't have meaning, that all of this showing up at church and following him and giving your life and time and money is all for naught? I think for most of us, if we're honest, we have that question from time to time because we want to be significant. We want our life to have purpose. And if we're putting all of this in there, we want it to be for something. And what I love 
is again, these disciples have given up everything. They've left their family's professions. They've left the boat. They've left really well-paying jobs as tax collectors and all these things. And they're sitting on the side of the mountain. And Jesus assures them, he says, I will use you. You no longer need to worry about if your life is going to be purposeful or why you left. I am going to use you. And he tells us the same thing. Where the salt you are had a warning for the lax disciples, the danger of being saltless, this light you are has a promise attached for the anxious disciples, the impossibility of the uselessness of true disciples. You see, disciples, followers of Jesus, need both warning and encouragement. Warning so that they remain disciples and close to him, but encouragement so that they do not think that their effectiveness is all up to them. The city sitting on a hill saying, like the two you are, is intended to lift Christians into a certain self-esteem, into a clearer self-consciousness. Jesus says, you are very important. And at first glance, this sense of importance can seem very counterintuitive to this beginning of the Beatitudes of blessed are the poor in spirit. It can seem like they're butt ahead of, of, of Jesus saying you're important, but also you need to be poor in spirit and have a good view of yourself. But I think there's a connection between these persons who find themselves in their worth in Jesus and not primarily in themselves are given in almost all of Jesus' sayings to the disciples the gift of feeling very important. The humility of faith and the significance of mission are not contradictions. They are cause and effect. Who loses one's life finds it. So if we will be Christians, if we will be salt, then Jesus will make us effective. He will make us light. Thus these two salt and light you are is hanging together like the command and promise of Jesus' first call. The first call that some of those disciples who would have been sitting there that very day heard as they were getting off the boat. Follow me and I will make you catching of people. If we will follow him, he makes us catching. And being catching is his promise and also his main responsibility. Our responsibility is only to stay as close as possible to the really big fishermen. His responsibility is to make us salty, catching, and inter interesting. Uh, one of the most understandable worries Christians have is knowing where to go and what to do in order to be most useful in this world. I think Jesus wants to remove us from the unbelieving anxiety that one's missionary success is up to oneself, that it's in our skills of networking, our friends in power, the things that we have to offer. I love this quote as I was reading through this. They said, Jesus is in the Christian enterprise too and is very interested in seeing light reach the whole house. Thus, the one who lights us up will also put us on the table to light everything around us. Jesus work in us. And then he ends by talking about these good deeds that we're to do for our Father. There's supposed to be something special about Christian good works. Their specialness, I think, is also supposed to be in their modesty. As we read through the beginning of the Beatitudes, if these parts are all together, at the beginning it says the poverty of spirit, to understand our, where we sit in the line of Jesus, that we are to know that it is only through God's good work, but also the mercy that we are shown into the Beatitudes. So that your kind of good works will not simply be more striking than everything else, but also more simple. Just as Jesus came and was born in a stall in Bethlehem, just as he came and was baptized instead of baptizing, just as he went to a cross and was humiliated, just as he came to serve and not to be served, it seems that the way these commands are carried out is almost as important as the simple fact that they're done. Christian works are somehow to be transparent to God, revealing less their agent and the person doing it and more their source. The goal is that people be impressed by the Father who makes disciples this way rather than by the disciples who miraculously behave this way. 
It's one of the things I love about doing NICERV together. Next week, we'll start talking about NICERV. It's a day where we get together and serve as a church together. But the purpose of NICERV is not to point towards us and say, look how great we are. The purpose is to reveal God's care for the world, to say God knows that there are pieces of the world that are broken, and he is actively involved in the reordering of the world, of fixing things, of restoring beauty, of restoring order, of restoring justice in the world. It is the point to the one who has sent us to show that God has made a difference in our lives and in our community, and it is a way for us to try to reflect the radiance of God's glory to the world. A quote I read the other day that has been sitting with me all week said that the purpose of our lives is to remove the veil from the Father's face and to, to display something of God's glory to the world. should no longer be necessary to ask the purpose of life. The purpose of life is the glory of God. So what if the most true thing about you are these words that were spoken by the one who spoke everything into place? What if the most true words that have ever been spoken about you and to you and through you and for you to live into were spoken by the word himself, the one who knew you from the beginning of time, the one who knows you, the one who knows your mess, the one who knows your sin, the one who knows everything about you in this very moment and still looks at you and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I really believe that if you hear those words and if you really hear them, if you really take the time to hear them and let them wash over you and let them sink into you, much like salt sinks into the things of the world, of the, of the food, if you let those words sink into you, and if you hear Jesus truly say to you how much he thinks of you, and how much he hopes for you, and how much he knows is true of you, and if we live into those words, and if we spend our lives living into those words, our lives change individually, they change together as a church, and the world around you has no choice but to change as we become the salt and light that Jesus hopes for us, that he says we are by being together, and that we continue to grow into day after day. See, these words say, you are mine. Jesus says, you're mine, and I have a purpose for you, and I will use you. I'll use you right where you are. I've put you exactly where I want you. Stay near to me, and I will make you useful. And it gives identity and shape and purpose to every moment of our lives. I think about what would happen if we really did that, if we really took the time individually to understand that, and we stayed so near to our Father that we let that continue to shape our lives, and what would happen if we continued to do that together, if we loved each other so well, if we cared for each other so well that the world would look in and say, what's different? And it drew us to the world so that our communities and our lives and our neighbors and our families and every bit of it is changed because of the work God is doing in us. That this particular church, Summit Church in Lake Mary, would make a difference in the world. It is a beautiful image and it is the great hope that Jesus has for each and every one of us. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. God, you care very deeply for us. You are quite fond of us. Lord, you see into our inmost being. You have known us from the beginning of time. You know who we are created to be. You know our identity. You know our purpose. You know what you can do in the life of a few guys who are willing to give it all up and sit on a mountainside with you and who transform the world. And you know that you can continue to do that work with a room full of people that are broken and that are trying to figure it out, but are the salt of the earth and that continue to try to draw closer. Lord, you are a faithful God. You're a God of hope and a God of purpose and a God who is not done with us yet. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain in you, that you would help us to find the areas that we need to remain salty and that you would draw us to them. And Lord, by being near to you, that you would draw us to the world and that we together would be the light of the world to those around us, God, that our lives would not be for naught, but they would be for you. God, help us to continue to see that day after day. Lord, help give us hope and draw us to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.